Amen. I want to thank the music team up here for lending their talents, their gifts from God to lead us in worship and to enhance our gathering together. Now it's time to look into God's word. Let's uh, just bow in prayer as we look into God's word. Father, we thank you for this time of the service. We thank you for the way we were able to join our voices and worship you. We thank you for just the fact that we have a community of saints, a community of believers here who love one another, help one another, and make a difference in our community and in the world. Father, we pray your blessing upon our time and your word that we may understand it even more than we do and be able to follow you because of it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Have you ever had the experience of picking up a cup to take a drink, but as soon as what's inside touches your lips, you realize it's not at all what you thought it was going to be, and it tasted so disgusting that you just spewed it out of your mouth. So I, can I see hands? <laughs> you know, I remember watching old movies like The Three Stooges and Abbott and Costello. You know, someone would pick up a cup to drink, <clears throat> and everybody would try to stop them from drinking it, you know, because it was either paint thinner or something like that. And they wouldn't listen to him, and they'd take a big gulp, and then all of a sudden their face would turn red, and then it'd all come back out. But, you know, what we're going to see this morning, it might surprise you to read about, as we read about someone who uh, talked about spitting something out, and it may be even more surprising on what they said they were going to spit out. So we're going to be in Revelation chapter 3 this morning. We've been going through the seven letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. And I'd like to start by reading the first three verses. Well, our first three verses are actually going to start with verse 14. In Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. So if you'd follow along with me as I read this. There we go. It says, To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write. And this is Jesus dictating to John the Apostle to write to these churches. And we're into the seventh church that he's writing to. He says, these are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. Oh, let me go to verse 16. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. What a strange thing for Jesus to say. Spit them out of his mouth. So, you know, Jesus is sending this letter 
to the first century church in the city of Laodicea, an ancient Asia Minor. And this is the last of his letters to the seven churches. <clears throat> These letters have been very informative because they've been written to churches. And so we've been able to take tips from them, take you know, part of the message from them that we can deal with. And we saw each church dealing with different matters. And we were able to relate to each one in some way, some more than others. But this particular letter to the Laodiceans, it's going to affect us or it's going to relate to us more than the other letters because of the setting that they were in and the setting that we were in. So I want you to look again here at verse 14. And we've said all the way through, every letter begins with to the angel of whatever church it is. And there are different thoughts on that, that maybe it was a true angel from heaven that was going to deliver the letter. Or it, since the word angel means messenger, it could be just a leader in the church that was going to receive the letter. <clears throat> These are the words of the amen. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, the word amen is a word that is used to affirm a solid truth. You know, when somebody is telling you a story and they get kind of excited while they're telling it and they're getting more energetic as they're telling it, and if you agree with that story and you're involved in it, you may say, amen, brother, because you, you're affirming, you're putting a, an exclamation mark on what they're saying. And when Jesus says in the Gospels, truly, truly, I say to you, he is saying, the word is amen, amen, I say to you, because it's used to affirm something that's true. And here in verse 14, Jesus uses it as a name for himself. That's a little different way to use it. He says he is the amen. And that's because Jesus is the truth. He is truth incarnate. There's nothing false about him. The message he brings to them now can be fully trusted because he is truth. And the message that he brings will be truth. It will be God's message. Now, you know, <clears throat> I've been mentioning sometimes almost weekly how we're seeing today a number of Christian leaders, well-known Christian leaders, starting to leave the faith. And they're doubting God's word. But, you know... Well, I see that as when somebody doubts God's word, they're putting themselves in authority over the word. But the word is truth. God's word is the truth. And if you put yourself in authority over the truth, then you're, you've left the truth. And also, they're saying they can't believe that God would do this or God would do that or allow this to happen. And so they're saying they don't believe in God anymore. And it's the same thing because God is truth and Jesus Christ is truth. And no matter who turns away from him, no matter what happens in our world, no matter what things we can't understand, God is true. And Jesus Christ is the truth. I believe it's a deadly mistake to walk away from that and put ourselves in authority over God or over Jesus or the Bible. And Jesus calls himself here the faithful and true witness. And you know, he came to this earth and he was completely faithful and true as he witnessed for God. 
and he never backed off from it and took him all the way to the cross where he had to give his life because of his faithful witness. And we're going to see as we go through the book of Revelation, you know, as time goes on, we're going to see that those who suffer for Christ all the way will be faithful and true witnesses. But Jesus is the epitome of the faith, faithfulness and truth. He leads the way for all the faithful witnesses who will give their lives for the cross. Jesus is the one who showed us and who did it and made and modeled it for us. He made the ultimate, ultimate sacrifice as he gave his life for the sins of the whole world while he himself was sinless and righteous and holy. So he stands above everyone else as the faithful and true witness. So when Jesus says that he's the amen and the faithful and true witness, he can be absolutely trusted. That's what he's telling them, and that's what he's telling us. Jesus can be absolutely trusted. No matter what anyone suffers as a Christian, no matter what anyone is tempted to do, no matter how hard things get in this world, no matter what happens in this world, it gets turned upside down, no matter who says they don't believe in God anymore, Jesus is always completely and absolutely trustworthy. He is the amen. He is the amen, the faithful and true witness. And he says he's the ruler of God's creation there at the end of that sentence. That word has the idea of preeminence. It's not just one who's the boss, although that makes him the boss. <clears throat> it means he's the very first. He's the source. He's the origin. You know, the Gospel of John says, all things were created through him. He's the source. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. And in him was life and that life was the light of mankind. So Jesus is the preeminent ruler of God's creation. So now we're about to enter into some pretty strong statements in this letter to the Laodiceans. And as we do, we know everything that we read, even though it's going to sound kind of strange in some places, we know it's completely trustworthy because Christ is the amen the faithful and true witness going all the way to the cross with his witness and the ruler of God's creation. In him was made everything. So now let's keep going here in verse 15. <clears throat> he says, I know your deeds. I know the works that you are doing. I know the things that you're doing for the Lord. That you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Now, why would Jesus even talk like that? And what does he mean? He wishes they were hot or cold. And since they're not, since they're lukewarm, he's going to spit them out of his mouth. Well, you know, it really fits 
really well with the situation that the Laodiceans were in, in the place where they lived in Asia Minor. The city of Laodicea had no water supply of its own. See, it all fits with, <clears throat> with water. And they had no water supply of their own. Their city was founded at the junction of trade routes, which were chosen for purposes of commercial, you know, commercial activity and military activity, but not for clean water. And so you go six miles north of the city of uh, Laodicea, it's the city of Heropolis, and they were famous for hot springs. And those hot streams in Heropolis became well known for their healing qualities. And the city became a major health center. So you had this hot water that was very useful and helpful for healing. And Jesus says you're neither hot nor cold. And then you have 10 miles east of Laodicea. And see, this, this was well-known stuff in this day. <clears throat> and even records are found about this. Ten miles east of Laodicea was the city of Colossae. Colossae was well known for its cold, pure drinking water. But Laodicea had no, source, no good source of any kind of drinking water in and of itself. Well, then Laodicea would have its water piped in from a city named Denesli, which also had hot springs. But the problem was, as it came through the aqueducts, there wasn't enough time, not enough distance it traveled to cool off, and it would arrive lukewarm. And it also contained minerals, and so it was not even fit for drinking. So this is the background that Jesus is talking from. He says <clears throat> he's using this extremely relatable and practical metaphor to describe the spiritual condition of the Laodiceans. They are like their water. Their spiritual works, they're not good for healing like the hot springs of Hierapolis. And they're not good for life-giving quality of fresh water like Colossae. So he's saying the Christian community has nothing good to offer to people. And it's all because of their lifestyles. They're not living for Christ. They're weak Christians. They're living compromised lifestyles with their, with their uh, culture. He's saying that the water they are offering, which is their works, makes him want to vomit. And so he's using that metaphor of water all the way through. And then here's one more water fact that adds to the story. From Laodicea, there was this beautiful sight that you could see from the abundant hot springs of Heropolis when they came over this one cliff that was like 100 feet high and a mile long. And they would flow over this cliff you know, 300 feet high. And then it would make deposits down there uh, from these minerals and they would reflect the light and it stood up in front of this snowy-capped mountain, and it was a beautiful, beautiful sight. And again, it shows, but you couldn't drink it. You know, you couldn't eat it, you couldn't drink it. So it was this beautiful sight, but as far as bringing health, it was worthless. And so Jesus is saying, 
You're like your water. It doesn't do anything. Your works aren't producing anything because you're not really working for the Lord. He says, because you have no spiritual healing to people in need, and because you have no life-giving spiritual refreshment of cold water, I'm just putting words in Jesus' mouth here, you are lukewarm and you are no help to anyone. Now, you may think that's strong language, but he's describing the church, and in drinking water terms, he feels like spitting them out of his mouth. Now, we may think, well, Jesus isn't being very nice here, and we may have a little trouble with those kind of thoughts, but what we're going to find out as we continue on is that these Laodicean Christians are really in dire, dire need of waking up to the truth of their empty spiritual lives. And they don't even know how much danger they're in. They need to wake up before it's too late. So now, look with me as we go into verse 17. Here's what they say. Jesus is saying, You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Quite a difference there, isn't there? Rich and having everything you need to wretched, poor, pitiful, blind, and naked. Couldn't be any further apart from what Jesus' assessment of them is, could it? How could people be so far apart as they view themselves to what Jesus would say of them? How could Christians or people of a church family or people of a church community be thinking in the totally opposite way that Jesus would think of what is good and what is helpful? And then I'm thinking, you know, could we be possibly that blind to the truth, being part of a church? Well, let's look at more into it. <clears throat> we know that from the writings that Laodicea was a part of a very wealthy area of Asia Minor. That whole area was very wealthy, and Laodicea was kind of like the capital of wealth. They were a prime example of that regional wealth. Their coins, you know, on our coins, we have an eagle on the back of the quarter, maybe. I haven't seen a quarter in a long time. <laughs> but, and we have, you know, a motto, e pluribus unum. And, and so they, they mean something. You know, there's freedom. There's all from one, all, all from all one. And, but their motto was, I have wealth and need nothing. And the, the inscription on their coins was a cornucopia, which was, a, you know, all that fruit, a symbol of wealth and influence. So they really took pride, the Laodiceans did. I'm not just talking about the church, but that's, the, that's what the church was a part of. <clears throat> Excuse me. And in 60 AD, an earthquake leveled their city, and they were able to rebuild 
way beyond what was destroyed with no help from Rome. They were part of the Roman Empire, and Rome would help people rebuild when they got leveled by an earthquake or whatever, or war. But they didn't even need any help. They were so wealthy. They built even better than what got destroyed. They built a gymnasium, a sports stadium, triple gates and towers, beautiful bridges. And in that atmosphere of total wealth and need of nothing from anybody else, that's what the church was sitting in, that kind of an atmosphere, that kind of uh, thinking that people had in their culture. And it was a smug attitude of being wealthy, not needing anybody else's help. And thus we have the Laodicean Christians saying, I am rich and in need of nothing. But Jesus is saying, but you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Amazing difference, isn't there? And then now when I compare this Laodicean church and our churches in the U.S. and our churches in the U.S. with other, parts, other churches in other parts of the world, I can see how easy it might be to fall into the same mindset as the Laodiceans to some degree. You know, when we lack nothing materially, it can lead us to feeling sufficient, can't it? totally sufficient in and of ourselves. Now, I mentioned this before, <clears throat> but when Laura, Carmen, and I, when we, we go to some of the bigger cities that we go to visit family, we go to Tulsa or Owasso or Dallas or Kansas City, and it just amazes me, even though I grew up in Kansas City and lived in Dallas, <clears throat> it just amazes me when you, you start into the city and the suburbs and everything, you see these just endless rows of beautiful homes. You see shopping centers. You see theaters. You see restaurants. Endless, endless. All over the place. Just such a wealthy society that we live in. Endless wealth. If you want some piece of clothing... You could go all day long and never hit every store. And you know, when we Christians in the U.S. think of things that we need or goals we have, like in our homes or neighborhoods or our clothing or our cars, it's nothing like Christians in other countries, is it? It isn't like, you know, we set out to become wealthy snobs, but we just kind of like, drift there, don't we? <laughs> I'm not calling anybody a wealthy snob here. <clears throat> I'm just warning us to be careful not to drift there. There was a, one former pastor that Laura and I had in a church we went to um, a long time ago, and they had just come back from serving in Sudan. And then he got hired to be in this church of fairly, fairly high wealth in the Kansas City area, and so they come back from living in poverty to living in moderate wealth, and he ended up becoming the pastor of that church, and they bought a comfortable home in a nice neighborhood, 
sent their kids to a nice school. And he said they had to really sit down as a family and they had to make sure that they weren't, um, first of all, that they didn't, you know, just switch over to greed. And second of all, that they didn't look down on people for living so highly because, you know, you, you kind of live where you're at. So there has to be that balance, doesn't there? You know, we live where we live. I know we can't live in Owasso with only a mule for transportation. I mean, you know, it just doesn't work like that. <clears throat> but how do we stop ourselves from falling into the mindset of, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing? How do we guard against becoming too comfortable in our relative wealth? How do we make certain that we don't become earthly wealthy and spiritually no good? Well, in verse 18, Jesus gives us some financial advice. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. <clears throat> there, there are three areas here that the Laodiceans were very proud of, proud of being wealthy because of these three areas. One was in the banking business, the, the financial business, banking and commerce. And so Jesus in the first one says, I counsel you to buy gold refined from me, the gold refined in the fire. So refined in fire is when you go through trials. And so instead of the gold that they're proud of, he's saying, why don't you buy the gold from me where you build your character, where you learn to get to persevere through hard times. And then he talks about white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness. And the white robes were what they wore after a victory. And in the end, we're going to be wearing white robes as Jesus claims his victory over the earth. But it's going to be a true, holy victory that Jesus claims. And so we have victory when we stay with Jesus and when we fight for him. And then he talks about this eye salve so you can see. And they, <clears throat> well, first of all, Laodicea had a textile wealth off of fabrics and clothing. And then this eye salve, they had an eye salve that was medicinal. And Jesus says, why don't you buy your eye salve from me so you can see spiritual truths. So he's telling them to not look to earthly riches, but look to spiritual riches. Not look to man-made wealth, but look to Jesus' wealth that he gives. They were putting all their hopes and efforts into material pursuits for fulfillment. And they were gaining their happiness and their pride out of material pursuits. And Jesus wants them to start shopping in his marketplace of spiritual goods and spiritual growth. Come to me for your riches. I will make you rich toward God. Now, I was just thinking of an example of this. He talks about wearing clothes, what kind of clothes come to him to get white clothes to wear so you can show, uh, cover your shameful nakedness. And I was thinking, picture yourself maybe in Los Angeles or somewhere, 
and you go to one of these stores that the celebrities go to. And so you buy one of these outfits that, that you can tell they're made for celebrities. And you walk down the sidewalk in front of these shops and people are ooing and aahing because you wear this thing that looks so in style. And people are so impressed because that's what the celebrities wear. But then, when God sees that, he sees shameful nakedness. And that just kind of struck me thinking, the very thing that people would just think was the height of all style, God sees it as shameful nakedness. How could there be such a drastic difference it's really in the heart, isn't it? It's when we're trying to impress other people and we're getting all of putting all of our energy into making something of ourselves. And Jesus says, get your treasures from me. Don't get them from the world. Because those kind of things don't minister to anybody. They don't help anybody. God is telling us to buy gold refined by fire from him and white clothes to cover our shameful nakedness and salve from him so we can truly see what is real. And so how are they supposed to make this major change? Well, look at verses 19 and 20. He says, this is the hard part. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and, and they with me. So what he's saying is we have to stop and look and see exactly what we're doing. We have to judge ourselves. We have to say, Am I doing this for the right reason? Am I trying to get too rich in the world's eyes? Am I honoring, excuse me, God? Carmen got me a drink of water here. <clears throat> Thank you, Carmen. <clears throat> Am I honoring God with my motives? Am I money, using my money wisely so that it helps people? And then he's saying... Be earnest and repent. That's stopping, looking at ourselves, and turning to God. And then he says, anybody who does, he's waiting. He's saying to these Laodiceans who were just living lives that weren't really honoring God at all. And he says, any one of you who hears my voice opens the door, and then he says, you can have intimate fellowship with me. And so Jesus is walking us, us back, no matter where we've been. And he wants us to come in and change our mindset to follow him, to serve him, to do things according to heaven's values. Not be taken away by captive riches, earthly riches, turning away from heavenly riches. He wants us to buy into his values and not the world's. That's when he will rebuke 
and discipline us to make us stop and take notice. And there are so many passages that tell us not to reject his discipline. And so, he says, to the one who is victorious, the one who overcomes, the one who wins this battle of turning back to Christ instead of going with the world, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Jesus completed his mission. Now he sits on the throne with his father. And all of us who turn to the Lord, stay with the Lord, work for the Lord, we will be also on the throne, excuse me, meaning we will rule with Christ. And that's what it is. It's seeing things through heaven's eyes instead of the earth's eyes. It's following Christ instead of trying to impress people through earthly means. And then he finishes, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, how much it teaches us, how much it tells us straight truth. And we pray, Lord, that we would be attentive to that so that we could see things through heaven's eyes and we could resist being pulled into earthly trinkets that won't last and won't lead us to victory. Help us to be a part of your victory, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.